morning. So, the parable of the Good Samaritan. We know this one, don't we? Good Sunday school stuff. And even if this whole church and Bible thing is new to you, you've probably heard someone being referred to as a Good Samaritan if they've come to someone's help. We have the general idea that the parable of the Good Samaritan is an instruction to Christians basically to be nice, to uh, help people out, or more strongly, to be involved with causes of social justice. So, how do you expect to feel after hearing a sermon on the Good Samaritan? Maybe, like me, your instinctive reaction is to feel guilty. I really don't do much in the area of social justice. I ought to do more. Or maybe you feel okay on this one. Your work or your involvement with church or charities means you spend a lot of time and a lot of energy helping people out. Or just maybe you feel this is a bit irrelevant to you. You'd like to actively help people out more, maybe you used to in the past. But age or health problems or family circumstances mean that you just can't. I think there's a risk that if we take the parable out of context, we'll end up feeling guilty or maybe complacent or even useless. So I'm going to try to put the parable in its context in the Gospel of Luke. And my prayer is that we will understand more of God's mercy to us. And from that, we'll respond in sharing his mercy with a damaged world. Do please follow along with me in your Bibles or on your phones. It'll make more sense if you do. It's page 1042 in the Church Bibles. An encouraging Russell. Page 1042. So you know where I'm going. I've got three headings and then I hope some practical suggestions. I'll just run through my headings with you. They are God's mercy can't be earned. God offers us mercy. And God's mercy is the motivation for our ministry to others. Starting off with God's mercy can't be earned. The immediate context for the parable is that Jesus tells it in answer to a question from an expert in the law. Verse 25. The lawyer stands up to test Jesus. And look at how odd his question is. What must I do to inherit eternal life? Doing and inheriting don't go together. Inheritance is a matter of being part of the right family and of receiving a gift. Our lawyer has it partly right. He knows that eternal life is the inheritance of the people of God. But his question is based on the premise that his eternal life depends on what he does. That in some way, he can put God in his debt 
so that God has to give him the gift of eternal life. Jesus makes him answer his own question. He's a lawyer, so Jesus asks him about the law. Verse 26. What does the law say? He asks, what do you think it means? And the lawyer answers, love the Lord your God with all your heart and with all your soul and with all your strength and with all your mind and love your neighbor as yourself. Now, this isn't in the text, so you can challenge me on this, but I think there's an awkward silence from the lawyer when he said that. We've already used those two commandments in our communion liturgy. How do we respond when we've heard them? Amen, we say. Lord, have mercy. A conscience that is tender towards God knows that it falls way short of this standard. When I was preparing for this, I came across a useful test to measure whether you love the Lord with all your heart, soul, mind, strength. Think about this one. Your religion is what you do with your solitude. Your religion is what you do with your solitude. When you're on your own, when you have a moment to yourself, where do your thoughts go? Do you instinctively find yourself dwelling on the beauty and perfection of God? Or do you find yourself thinking about family, work, money, health, whatever it is? Where our thoughts go when there's no demand on them shows what we love the most. And love your neighbor as yourself. That's uncomfortable too, isn't it? Can we really say that we meet the needs of our neighbor with all the energy that we meet our own needs? I know I don't. Let's follow the conversation along. Verse 28. You've answered correctly, Jesus replied. Do this and you will live. So is Jesus saying that we can do enough to inherit eternal life after all? No. The lawyer has correctly identified how we should live, but in doing so has shown up that we can't meet that standard. Keeping the law, doing stuff, screwing ourselves up to love God, wearing ourselves out helping other people is never going to be enough. We will always fall short. God's mercy can't be earned. But, second heading, nonetheless, God offers us mercy. Before we look at the rest of the passage, I want to widen the lens a bit so we see a little where the parable sits in the rest of the book of Luke. Flip back with me, if you've got your Bibles there, to Luke chapter 9, verse 51. As the time approached for him to be taken up to heaven, Jesus resolutely set out for Jerusalem. 
This is a pivotal verse in Luke's gospel. The first chunk of the book is taken up in setting out who Jesus is. The rest of the book has to be read in light of the fact that Jesus is on his way to Jerusalem. Jesus resolves to go to Jerusalem knowing that Jerusalem is where he will be crucified. We'll keep that in mind as we look at the rest of the passage. We'll read the parable of the Good Samaritan in the shadow of the cross. So, back to chapter 10, verse 29. Our lawyer is feeling uncomfortable. He's realized that though he knows the requirements of the law, he can't keep them, and he wants to justify himself. He wants to make excuses for himself, to make himself look okay after all. So he asks another question, who is my neighbor? This is such a lawyer's question. As some of you know, I'm a lawyer myself, so I recognize the breed, and I can tell you it hasn't changed over the centuries. If you're not a lawyer, and you live in a world where normal words have normal meanings, you know who your neighbors are. They're the people you live next door to, people you rub shoulders with in day-to-day life. But our lawyer wants to narrow things down. Surely God can't expect him to love everyone he comes across with as much energy as he loves himself. That just wouldn't be realistic. So conveniently glossing over the command to love God, he tries to catch Jesus out again. And as he so often does, Jesus tells a story. Let's look at the Samaritan and what he does for the man who's fallen victim to bandits. What motivates him? Verse 33, he saw the man and he took pity on him. Other translations say he had compassion. He's motivated by compassion. Unlike the religious figures who've passed by on the other side, he has crossed the road. The priest and the Levite will have had very sensible reasons for not helping the man. For all they knew, he might have been dead. They'd have been religiously defiled if they touched him. The bandits might still be lurking behind a rock. They'd put themselves in danger if they stopped. But the Samaritan ignores his own safety because of his compassion for the victim. The Samaritan's compassion makes him give help that is costly and messy. He bandages the man's wounds. He pours on oil and wine. He uses what he has to administer first aid. Though what he has is expensive. He spends time and money on the victim. He takes him to an inn and cares for him. Whatever else he had in the diary for that day didn't get done. He offers unlimited financial resources to care for the victim's needs. And what relationship does the Samaritan have with the victim? None. Worse than none. 
The Jews and Samaritans had centuries of enmity between them. The Samaritan goes to the rescue of someone who is his natural enemy. So rather than narrowing things down, as the lawyer had hoped, in Jesus' story, we're made to see that everyone is our neighbour and deserves our compassion. Whatever it costs us, even if they're not people we would normally come across, even if we really don't like them. Now, remembering that we're reading the parable in the shadow of the cross, do you see who Jesus wants the lawyer and us to identify with in the story? We're the victim lying in the road. We're helpless and in need of mercy. And Jesus comes to us with compassion, extending us help that costs him everything, even though we are his enemies. While we were still sinners, Paul says in the letter to the Romans, Christ died for us. God offers us mercy. Last heading. God's mercy is the motivation for our ministry to others. Verse 37. Go, says Jesus, and do likewise. The command is clear. Go and offer practical love to everyone in need, regardless of whether they are your enemy, regardless of what it will cost you, knowing, in fact, that it will cost you. So, aren't we just back where we started? We can't do this. We can't screw ourselves up to love others enough. And if we try and think we're doing okay, we just end up congratulating ourselves. And if we're honest, we fall into the sin of pride, and we realize we're not loving God with all our heart and soul and mind and strength. Let's widen the lens again and see what comes before and after this story. At the beginning of chapter 10, Jesus sends the disciples out on a preaching and healing tour, and it goes really well. Verse 17 of chapter 10, the disciples returned with joy because even demons had submitted to them. And Jesus responds, verse 20, do not rejoice that the spirits submit to you, but rejoice that your names are written in heaven. Look what comes after the parable. Verses 38 to 41, Mary and Martha. Martha is rushing around serving Jesus, who does have a genuine need of practical help of meals. But it's Mary who's doing the most important thing, Speaking Bible. Okay. Not sure how to deal with that. I'll just carry on. So, Mary is doing the most important thing. <laughs> Which is what? Which is sitting at Jesus' feet, 
listening to him. The parable is sandwiched between two accounts where Jesus shows us that the most important thing isn't what we do for God, whether in practical or spiritual ministry. The most important thing is our relationship with God. God has written our names in heaven. The mercy he offers us doesn't just save us, it brings us into a relationship with him of tenderness and intimacy. We haven't got time today to look at uh, Psalm 25, our Old Testament reading, but look at it on your own. It's a lovely picture of the relationship between God and someone who humbly trusts him. I'll pick out just one verse, Psalm 25, verse 14. The Lord confides in those who fear him. He makes his covenant known to them. So, if you're feeling guilty that you're not out there serving others, don't think that guilt will motivate you to change. It won't. At least, not for long. But do take your guilt to Christ. Understand more, day by day, what his mercy to you cost him and how much he loves you and how much he wants a relationship with you. Ask the Holy Spirit to give you his heart of compassion so that you do go out with his practical love to your neighbours. If you're feeling complacent, be careful. None of us can earn our way to God. Focus on God's compassion to you and let God's compassion flow out through you. And if, just maybe, your life circumstances are making you feel useless, widen your lens. If you are a Christian, your name is written in heaven. Christ died for you. It is enough to sit at his feet. So, some practical suggestions, which I would ask you please not to hear as a list of you musts. It is so easy to fall back into tricking ourselves that we're doing what God wants if we follow rules. But the other side of the coin is that practical discipleship means we do need to step out in obedience to Jesus' command to go and do likewise. Where do we start? First, and this probably is a you must actually, pray. As I've already said, we won't get anywhere by trying to motivate ourselves. It's the work of the Holy Spirit to make us understand God's compassion and to move in us to give us compassion. Actively seek that compassion from God. Pray on your own, with others, with your home group. Find someone you trust. But let us encourage one another in this. Secondly, cross the road. Make an effort towards compassion. 
That might mean being more focused in your praying. Get hold of the prayer diary, perhaps of one of our mission partners or of another Christian relief agency. Know more about what they do. Allow your heart to be softened as you read and pray. Do something costly. Think of something you'd miss. The daily cup of coffee, the new outfit, the new bit of tech, maybe even a weekend away. Give that money over and above what you already give to support vulnerable people. Hold one another to account. Start with me. As I've been preparing this, I've prayed about what practically God would have me do. I've decided, come autumn, to have a go at joining the street pastors. I'm really not sure it's my thing. I've got any number of sensible reasons why it isn't. But with the help of God, I'm going to cross the road to people I wouldn't normally have anything to do with and give it a go. It might not last, but I'm going to try. So come September, ask me if I've signed up. So I have just thrown out a few ideas of how we might start or move on with showing the compassion of Christ. For far more fleshed out ideas, I recommend Timothy Keller, Ministries of Mercy, as a summer read. May God give us joy as we share his love with others. Amen.